Hi there, welcome back to another episode of What are you going to do with that? Under extreme conditions. As the University of Haifa and the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law under extreme conditions are still closed due to the corona crisis, this podcast is recorded online. So this podcast is coming to you from our living room to yours. Our guest today is Dr. Tamar Megiddo. Welcome, Tamar. Thank you. I'm glad to see that you're doing all right in these chaotic times. And also thank you for making some time to chat with me. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So first, let me introduce you. Dr. Tamar Megiddo received her LLB, magna cum laude that is, from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And she holds both an LLM with honors and the JSD from the New York University School of Law. As a doctor of juridical science, she has held several postdoctoral positions at Tel Aviv University, which was at the Global Trust and TrafLab ERC research projects, and also at the Hebrew University, which was Lady Davis. Currently, you're a postdoctoral fellow at the Minerva Center at the University of Haifa, while at the same time adjunct professor at the College for Law and Business and a teaching fellow at the Hebrew University. Also an adjunct at Tel Aviv. Also in Tel Aviv. All right, so was that something that changed recently? Uh, I just started the second semester. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. So that all went online now, I guess? Yeah, we actually started the semester online. Wow. Yeah, it's actually, it's actually working surprisingly well. Good to hear. All right, and then the last bit I was going to go into is that your research interests are in public international law and in law and technology focusing on non-elite or the ordinary individual people, and on the everyday practice of law, she investigates how law and technology operate to empower and constrain individuals. Her work has been published in leading academic journals, including the Harvard International Law Journal, the Yale Journal of International Law, and the Columbia Journal of Transnational Law. I actually found it very interesting that you look into how technology could empower, but on the other hand, also constrain individuals when we look at everyday practice of law. Especially now, for example, with the corona crisis, we see that governments use GPS tracking to find out which citizens are not complying with quarantine regulations. On the one hand, it's supposed to protect the greater good, but it also infringes upon the privacy of those particular individuals. So I'm happy to have you here with us today and to hear your theories. Before I start asking you a few short questions, I'm going to go ahead and pour myself my own signature drink, which is amaretto. What are you having over there? Just a glass of red wine. Red wine always works. Yeah. Just a second while I pour myself this one. Oh, a little bit too much. I hope that's not going to be <laughs> reflecting in the end of the chat. All right, let's raise our glasses. And have a cheer. Cheers. L'chaim. L'chaim. All right, here come the short questions. What is your fuel in the morning, now that, due to the corona measures, going to a coffee house isn't an option anymore? Uh, well, I actually drink a very strange cup of coffee in the morning and throughout the day. I, I drink Turkish coffee, but I drink it with milk, which is something I learned from my grandmother. Oh. Yes, I know it's weird, but that's what I drink. All right, so you didn't even need the coffee house before. Yeah, the, no one knows how to prepare that. So when I'm out, I drink a latte or, you know, an espresso. But at home, that's my preferred poison. All right, nice. And what is the best thing that has happened to you last weekend? I don't know. The kids went to bed and gave us a, two hours to work. 
and quiet. <laughs> I don't know the weekends from weekdays anymore. Is that because of the corona or because you work from home a lot? Uh, no, it's because of the corona, because the kids are at home all day, every day, and so you have to keep them busy and then stick in a few hours of work throughout the day. Any tips for our listeners on how to keep the kids busy? I don't know. Seriously. <laughs> We're barely surviving here. No tips from me. You've reached a point where it's hard to come up with something new. Okay, but you've gotten this far. <laughs> True. It will be all right. We'll get through this. Okay, so what is the number one item? that you would save from your burning house? Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, it's a tough pe People excluded, I assume, uh, electronics. Yes, of course we would all save our loved ones, but yeah. I'm talking more material stuff. Yeah. When, I, when I was a kid, there was a fire in my in, where I lived, and the first thing I got into the bag I got out and prepared was a box of pictures. So in 2020, I think the answer would be my phone, because that has all the pictures I need. It's about the pictures and the memories. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, I'm sorry that that happened to you earlier. I had no idea. No, nothing happened. I was just uh, I was just preparing, but eventually it, went, it was okay. I'm happy to hear that. I have to tell you that um, I live here in Haifa, and I've lived here for a while. So we had a wildfire just a few years ago, and me and my partner had to prepare a bag. That's what we were told, that in case we would have to be evacuated, we would be able to run out with this one bag. And then I had to think by myself, what am I going to put in this one bag, right? So, of course, it's like your, your valuables, like some jewelry, your laptop, your phone. But, and my boyfriend still laughs at this today. He, I, I packed my diplomas. I packed my BA and my MA. Because <laughs> these were the most valuable things to me at the time. <laughs> So I packed them in the bag as well. I'd have to think about it all over again if I have to do it today, though, I think. <laughs> okay, then what is your favorite holiday? Oh, wow. <clears throat> Shavuot is my favorite holiday. I love the dairy, uh, all kinds of dairy foods that are made. We have a lot of traditions in the family for Shavuot, so it's absolutely my favorite. All right, and it's coming up not too long from now. True. So let's hope we can celebrate that with extended family again. Nice. My favorite holiday is actually Hanukkah, and I think it has most to do with the souvganiot, with the <laughs> the sweets that come with the holiday. You can't blame me there. Talking about food, if you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, bread and butter. <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> But good bread. That's it? Yeah. Oh, it's some real good stuff. <laughs> okay, your choice. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> Let's move on to some more serious questions. So you're now a postdoctoral fellow at the Minerva Center, and this is the first time for you at Haifa University, isn't it? Yes, it is. And before that, as we've talked about, uh, you've been to Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, New York. So tell me a little bit about how you ended up in Haifa and got to the Minerva Center. That's a good question. Uh, I've actually never been to Haifa University even to visit until, I guess, about a year ago. Yeah, I know, shame on me. And I was really glad that I did. Uh, and it was just really, I, I did a postdoc in Tel Aviv, a couple actually, and one in Jerusalem, and, and Haifa was the obvious uh, next stop for me. Uh, I wanted to meet the faculty and get to know the research. And so that's how I ended up in the Minerva Center, trying to sort of, just to get to know what's done. 
Did you have to apply for a scholarship? Was it something that was out there already? Everyone knew the Minerva Center? Or was it something you found when you searched for it? Uh, no, I knew of it. I had friends who were fellows there in the previous years. And so I was waiting for the call for uh, applications to come up. And when they did, I submitted my application. And what about that application and your current projects? What are you working on right now? So I've actually not yet... Uh, don't tell my supervisors at the center, but I haven't actually uh, profoundly started my project. It's halfway done, I should say, because it's uh, a project that builds on research already done for my doctorate. And I, it's a project I really like, and I've been waiting several years to write up uh, that I call Babysitter Justice. Basically, I'm look Babysitter Justice. Yeah, exactly. It's, an, it's a nice title, right? It is. It's a, it's a paraphrase on something that one of the justices of the Israeli Supreme Court uh, said, coined. Uh, he said that the court was babysitting cases. Uh, and what he meant by that was that there were cases where the court chose not to decide, but rather to accompany uh, a, a certain case, to see through, to get the government to uh, amend its ways on its own, for instance, uh, to and to avoid actually writing down a ruling. Now he had his own, the own his own uh, meaning that he attached to the to this phrase. But what I am trying to coin when I talk about uh, judicial babysitting is this fear of ruling, or this uh, this concern of ruling because the court is uh, is concerned that its legitimacy might be impacted if it ruled on a politically sensitive issue. And where do I see this? And this is where the, the research from my doctorate comes in. One of my uh, case studies in the doctorate was a case uh, that we called here in Israel hot return. Basically, there were um, asylum seekers coming in from Africa to Israel through the Sinai de Desert. And they would just cross the, the border there that was mostly unfenced, just cross it by foot and come into Israel. And at some point, uh, the army developed a policy uh, that was colloquially known as hot return, which meant that basically people were pushed back across the border into Egyptian territory so that they wouldn't enter Israel. Over the course of a few years that there was litigation in the Supreme Court against uh, this practice from the, from the military. Now, the court didn't like this practice at all from the, from the starters. Um, and in 2007, when they got the petition, they told the, the, the government of Israel, go and figure out what it is you're doing, Dra draft up a written policy and make sure that the soldiers on the ground comply with it. Uh, and they had the, the government go back and amend the practice again throughout the years, but they never actually ruled on this petition. They just babysat it until in 2011, the Mubarak regime was toppled in the uh, in the Arab Spring, and the so-called coordination between the government of Israel and the government of Egypt broke down, and so they couldn't just push people back because the Egyptians wouldn't have it, and so and and, and then that's what that was when the the government decided to freeze the policy, and the court then rejected the petition. And so I want to I want to think about the ways where the court is sort of hesitant or concerned to rule on an issue, even though from the comments judges make, it's pretty clear that they're very unhappy with the practice of the government, 
but they choose another kind of item from their tool toolkit that is not a ruling because of these legitimacy concerns. All right, so this was already a part of your doctorate that you got from New York University, right? Uh, well, the, the case was, but I had a, a very different angle on it uh, in the doctorate. So in, in my doctorate, what I wrote about was how people are a very important part of the everyday practice of international law. And when I looked at this case in the doctorate, what I did was I wanted to show how different people on the ground, the ordinary people that you mentioned earlier, how they were crucial in determining how, interna how international law would or would not be actually implemented on the ground. And so what I did was I went around and I interviewed, I, I did this kind of rashomon. So I collected um, uh, testimonies from everyone I could think of who was involved in this hot return practice. So I interviewed soldiers on the ground, both um, people who were in regular service and people who were reserve soldiers at the time. I interviewed uh, legal advisors in the military and in the government. I interviewed the, the petitioners, the lawyers who petitioned against the practice, uh, the, the person who was the UNHCR, the uh, UN uh, High Commissioner for Refugees representative in Israel at the time. Um, and so I tried to sort of give a picture that was rounded about how the this sort of negotiation between the different little people was crucial in determining whether it, Israel did or not comply, did or did not comply with international law on the ground. And sometimes it was a soldier who uh, uh, disobeyed a direct order that made it so that Israel would comply with international law with respect to a particular case and a particular day. Right, yes, because um, working on migration, mostly in Europe, I know all about pushbacks uh, <laughs> and what international law has to say about that. Right. Without going into it with too much detail. <laughs> All right. Um, so was it easy for you to find this switch between universities abroad, like the one in New York, and then coming back to Israel to continue with a postdoc, whether that was in Tel Aviv, Haifa or Jerusalem, and to also then find a way to um, use that topic that you were already working on and to expand it into something new? Um. Well, coming back was, well, it has several faces, I suppose. In terms of intellectual stimulation, I feel like um, Israeli universities are, are terrific places to work in. There are so many brilliant people uh, who themselves have such um, very diverse networks. And there are so many events going on and such interest. I mean, it's, it's been very interesting to come back and I've been uh, taking classes still as much as I can um, when I could uh, and, and coming into lectures, etc. So I've, I've really had a academically terrific uh, time uh, in New York, but also when I came back. I think the thing I missed most was this community of scholars. So when I was doing my JSD, we had this open space where all the doctor students will, would sit together and would talk about their work and just, you know, friends, you know, have coffee together in the morning and talk about life. Um, and it was very, even professionally, it was very uh, meaningful for me. And I think that's what I missed the most when I came back, because when you're a postdoc, it's often not within a community or it's often just you in an office somewhere. Um, so I think that was the biggest transition I, I made professionally when I came back to sort of rebuild my community. 
Would you say that then the biggest difference between New York and coming back to Israel was that it maybe was more lonely in a way? Yes, I think so. And it wasn't just, it wasn't the coming back from New York because, you know, socially, this is my home. It was, uh, it was terrific to come back to my family and my friends. Uh, but professionally, I think the transition from being a doctoral student to being a postdoc student, that was, that was uh, I think, a big transition for me. And it meant that I had to uh, to do a lot of work to find my new community here or strengthen ties over the internet with pe- with friends abroad to make sure that you that I'm not like, professionally lonely because I I think this um, you can't do academic work without a good network without people to think with and to have have them read your stuff and comment etc. Um, and when I found that here, that was that was very meaningful. All right. Did that take a while? And was that mostly uh, friends who are in the same field as you are? Or is this also family or supervisors or other important people in your life that help you through these times? Um, it took a while. Uh, I, don't, I actually find that it's often people who are outside your field that are sometimes even more helpful because they have a different perspective that you maybe haven't thought of. Sometimes people who are too close can see the faults that you also can see. So I actually like to have a diverse community in that sense. And, and you find, you find uh, new, like more senior scholars uh, who, who you, you learn to, to know and who would be willing to read your stuff, et cetera, so, or to write together, which is also uh, something I, I like very much to do, to co-author a paper. So yeah, but it, it takes a while to build a community, but it's worth it. All right. Sounds good. Yeah. So uh, I mentioned that you're teaching now at the College for Law and Business also at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. You added to the list Tel Aviv University. Uh, what is it exactly you teach there? So um, let me start from the end. So uh, I have just finished in Jerusalem where I taught um, a, a course that I've been teaching for three years now, which is a moot court, uh, moot court competition. It's called the Jessup. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's the largest international law moot court competition in the world. It's, uh, I think it's, close to 150, uh, no, I'm probably exaggerating a little bit, but certainly over 100 countries who are participating with uh, close to 500 law schools. Uh, And there are teams in each law school who prepare both oral presentations and written submissions for a case that's written by the uh, International Law Students Association who runs the competition. And it's a really great project. And I did that as a student. Uh, and I've been coaching a team for the past uh, three years, two years in Tel Aviv and this past year in Jerusalem. And it's, it's the, great, the greatest thing about this is to be able to see students, sometimes in their first year, transform into these magnificent, brilliant lawyers in just a year of, or uh, uh, a few months. And it's, it's such a meaningful uh, experience for them. It's, it's very, it's wonderful to watch. I really like it. So do you really like teaching or only this particular course? I really like teaching. Um, this course is it's it's almost one on one. So it's only five students uh, with at least two coaches. Uh, so it's very intimate. But this past year, I've also taught um, public international law to a class about of about 30. And now I teach uh, immigration law for a class of about uh, 80, although uh, online less of them arrive. So it's been a diverse year in terms of teaching, but I, I really enjoy teaching. It's very uh, hard, very demanding, preparing for classes and, and giving them. But uh, I really like 
sort of the interaction and, uh, and the contact with the students. All right. But how do you manage all of these three different teaching jobs and your research and the family life at the same time? I, uh, yeah, I don't. <laughs> so I took way too, I took on way too much this year. Uh, I, as I told you, I just started another course in Tel Aviv, where, which is like a, a colloquium, like a workshop with uh, invited speakers. And it's it was all definitely too much for one year. Uh, but I sort of got all these opportunities and didn't want to uh, say no to any of them. And so I'm just working at nights and uh, waiting for the year to finish. Grabbing it by its horns. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Do you have any tips, though, for anyone else who um, also enjoys a lot of different things and would like to try as much as they can? Or where would you advise anyone else to say, okay, this is where you have to stop? I, first of all, I should say I think it's very personal, right? I also have three very young kids and, uh, and a partner who's working full time. So it's very dependent on your personal uh, you know, capacities and what you can take on. Uh, I, I knew it was. I knew I was taking too much. So I guess you just know. Yeah, I don't know. But no regrets, still. I should, probably should have said some, to something no, but I, I don't. I don't know what. I mean, I wouldn't give up anything at the moment. All right, sounds very fair. Actually, I wanted to ask you if you ever had to or felt like you were put in this position where you had to make decisions, very difficult ones, uh, between your academic career and your family or your private life? And did these decisions that you then had to make give you uh, only restrictions or were you able to find any opportunities in them? Well, uh, it's hard to, you know, point your finger at a particular thing. I think it's every day when you make these choices, right? If you have an email that you feel like you need to answer immediately, um, and but it's five and a half and you're in the playground with the kids, then uh, that's, a, that's a price you pay, right? If it's a kid is sick and you have to stay home and miss the faculty seminar then it's it's the other way around um i don't know i don't know that there are any tips one can give you you just take it one day at a time i don't uh particularly think i'm necessarily doing a good enough job uh but i think that's well you can't be a mother if you don't have guilt feelings about that right (laughs) i don't know you just do your best and uh, and forgive yourself when you don't i don't know I haven't actually met your children yet, but I haven't heard them yet, so which means that they must be fast asleep. So something went well there. True. And I've just read about all these um, publications that you've done, so it looks to me like you've been quite successful and you're doing just fine. <laughs> so let's put the struggles aside then a little bit and move to the other side of the coin, right? What are your successes and what makes a success for you? Oh, wow. <laughs> my successes um, so one kind of success that I have been focusing on this year is my students success so uh, making sure that they do better uh, that they understand what it is they're doing that they're uh, trying to take the the challenge that they're facing and really attack it from all angles this was particularly the case with the moot court team, which you get to actually really work with them again and again about a certain issue or a certain problem. Uh, and that's that's part of why this experience is great. But I've also seen this in class with the students struggling to, you know, really get a grip on an issue or a, or a rule or a standard. Uh, and when you get when you see that the you know that the coin has dropped, that they've 
they've uh, grasped the idea, then that's it's fun. It's a, it's a great moment. So that's I think that's a success. Uh, personally, I think the past couple of years I've seen some successes in terms of uh, getting my things published, uh, which was great because it was it was a struggle prior to that. So there was the first uh, the first article that you mentioned uh, in the Yale Journal of International was sort of my first postdoctoral uh, or post JSD publication, and it was a it, what was the title of that article? It's called Beyond Fragmentation. Basically, it's an argument with a with a debate that exists in international law scholarship about whether international law is fragmenting into these different islands. And I'm basically just saying that uh, even if it is, there are forces within the system that push it back together again, that are int- integrationist. And I show why. Okay. Interesting read then. <laughs> I, I actually really like this. You should this. look it up. <laughs> yeah, I really like this project, especially because it was sort of an idea I've, been, I've dragged with me since my LLB years. And it was the first thing I was able to publish after finishing the, the doctorate. And it took me a couple years to actually succeed in placing something. And it's been easier since then, I think, probably because the student editors, uh, you know, they see your CV and when you've, when you've published well, then, then that, I guess that makes a difference. Um, but also, I think I've I've had all these rounds of projections and uh, comments from editors, etc., that I've been able to learn from these rejections a lot to understand what could work. And so it, it's nice to get published, and it's it's even nicer to, to get read uh, and to get uh, comments. So and if I met uh, someone at a conference a couple couple uh, months ago, and he said, "Oh, I read this in that uh, article of yours, and I used it in my dissertation. It was." Wow, that was great, you know. Uh, Everything you ever wanted. <laughs> exactly. So, so that's nice. It's not. I don't care. I mean, I I care to publish well because I understand that it's it's you know realistically it's something you're judged by if you want to make a career in the field. But I'm I'm happier to see my SSRN downloads go up than I am to uh, to uh, know that I've placed something in an article um, because because it's nice. To have people engage with their ideas. Right, to keep developing yeah. those ideas. Yeah. All right. If we would say talk about your academic achievements and leave the, leave the SSRN aside, what would you say is your biggest academic achievement so far? Oh. <laughs> These are really tough questions. I think one of the one of my uh, projects that I'm most proud of is an article called um, Methodological Individualism. And I think this one is an achievement for me because it was it was something I tried to uh, figure out for years before I was actually able to crack how to how how to best write it down. So it's basically it's an article that I wrote like maybe a year and a half or two after completing my my uh, dissertation, and it's basically a different. It's another way to think about what I was uh, worrying about in my dissertation, what I was trying to address in my dissertation. So it's it's a, it's like a take two of the problem I had in the dissertation of how or why individual people matter for international law, and I'm I'm really proud of how it came out in the end. So I, I I felt like I was finally able to really articulate what it was that was bothering me and why uh, I think this and that is the right direction to to ta- to address the issue. I think that deserves another raise our glasses. Yay. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> All right, and then maybe in order for others to achieve something big or something that maybe you would 
tell your students who might be listening to this interview later, do you have any important recommendations for someone who's about to enter the field in order to also achieve something bigger? So maybe I'll quote something that uh, Professor jo Joseph Weiler, who was the head of my JSD program, used to say to us, and that was, leave time for thinking. I think we do a lot of uh, reading and a lot of writing, but he says, and I think he's right, we don't leave enough time for actually thinking. And I feel like that's that was a wonderful tip for me. So I actually try to force myself sometimes just stop reading for a minute and don't write yet. Just stop and think what it is you want to say, what bothers you, and how best to say that, and, and only then write. In order to best convey that message and what's actually stuck in your mind that you want to write down. Right, and it's not just the convey, it's really to, to get to the bottom of something. You need to pause it a second, I think. Okay, I could use that advice. Thanks. <laughs> and then anything open for any new next projects? I have a few next projects that I want to do, um, but I have to sort of finish some open projects before I actually get there. Um, and I've done mostly teaching this year. So I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about two, the, two of my next projects, but are, they are really the, in the, not in the recent future. One is um, a, a legal theoretical project about technology. So I, I wrote uh, this last article I published was, uh, it's called Online Activism, Digital Domination and the Rule of Trolls. Uh, basically talking about really the perils of um, the technological empowerment of governments. So basically I'm talking about how the internet and technology in the early days of the internet were seen as this emancipatory tool for society, certainly for activists, and they were and they still are. Uh, but governments have been... Maybe that was something we also saw in the Arab Spring? Exactly. I think that was sort of uh, the... It seemed at first to be the embodiment of this promise, right, of the internet and this technology of social media, etc. But governments have been able to really close the technological gap. And today they use a variety of technological tools to shut down activism in various ways. And so uh, this article really surveys and sort of tries to map and categorize the different ways governments use uh, to, uh, to censor activists, basically, in, in, in all kinds of ways. And one of the follow-up projects I want to do about after that one is to try to think theoretically about where the line is between legitimate use of citizens by the government to enforce the law or policy, and where does that become illegitimate? And maybe I'll explain to make it uh, clearer. One of the things I saw when I did this first project was that governments use digital militias, what we call trolls sometimes. They use citizens to monitor other citizens and to report them or to monitor them and then shut them down in various ways by trolling them, you know, by commenting on their, uh, on their tweet or sending threats or just drowning out their voice, etc. And there's vast use of civilians against other civilians. And what I was thinking when I was writing this first project was that there are instances where government's sort of use of civilians could be legitimate when it's not actually propelled by the government. So if there are many, many supporters, for instance, for the governing party in Israel, for, for just for the sake of the example. And they choose to reverberate this message from the governing, from the governing party, from the Likud. 
and they do this on their own accord, then I think that that, that is legitimate. And the question is, when does the government actually stand behind these people and use them, manipulate them to monitor other citizens or drown them out or scare them or uh, you know push them out of the uh, of the online conversation, etc. Which is like, which I think is illegitimate. Or even just you know spy on them, monitor them, and report what it is they say to the authorities, etc. So I want to try to think where do we draw this line because we have we have projects here in Israel where uh, civilians will report traffic reports of other civilians. And that's for a good cause, right? It's supposed to be to sh- to make sure that no one, you know, gets killed on the roads. Or we have uh, now we have this place where you can uh, tell if someone else is breaking the corona, uh, the social isolation orders, right? So you can report to the government on that. So where do we draw the line? Where where is it legitimate that we do this? That we we uh, use civilians to monitor other civilians? Uh, where do we get to be this digital Stasi, right? So that's what I'm worried about. That's project one. Sorry if it was a little all over the place. <laughs> it's very it's very early. Sounds like a legit worry though. Yeah, I I think it is a worry, but I I, I think we need to be very careful in tagging all of these uh, sort of online crowds as necessarily mobs or necessarily driven by this or that big actor because sometimes these things really are right. they're not what's called astroturfing they're genuinely coming from below right uh, the question is where when when do governments hide behind what seems to be genuine crowds but they are actually behind them that's what worries me all right so would this be a next uh, article That you plan to do yeah I think so I think it's that's that's uh, next project number one uh, next project number two is a different line of research I've been doing and that is about bilateral labor agreements this is a fairly under researched phenomenon uh, governments uh, enter into bilateral agreements with other governments to uh, regulate labor migration from one country to another Uh, it's a very interesting phenomenon because most international law is actually done through uh, multilateral treaties. And there are several things interesting here. One is this turn to bilateralism. Another is that many of these agreements are actually secret or defined as non-binding. It's also not necessarily clear why governments enter into them because each government is basically sovereign to just regulate its own migration law and it doesn't need the consent of other governments. So there are all kinds of open questions here. And the first the first issue is that we don't know much about the field. And so I want to do this NLP, so natural language processing research project about the, the agreements that we do have. So we have a collection uh, that we got from, the, from Adam Chilton from the University of Chicago, who has collected about uh, 350 agreements. And we want to try to run them through a natural language processing software to try to canvas them and see what's actually in there. What, what do these uh, agreements do? What are the common provisions? Do they regulate the rights of uh, migrant workers, which is what I care about? And uh, to try to think whether we can actually use these as devices to improve the protection of the rights of migrant workers. Yeah, labor migration, that's a hot topic right now, I do understand. Also in Europe and in other places in the world. Yeah. Interesting. And then to wrap up, the last question is always, what are you going to do with that? Uh, that's a very good question. And the uh, genuine answer is, I don't know yet. 
so I'm I'm here to stay as as far as it's up to me, and we'll see uh, if it works. All right. Well, I wish you the best of luck with that. I'm looking forward to the publications that are still to come. We'll keep our eyes open for them. Uh, and then to come around full circle, I'd like to ask you another short few questions. What was the most important conference that you've been to? Important to you? It could have been one of the biggest ones, or it was in an interesting place. Or... I don't know. It's hard to pinpoint one. I'm actually a, re a conference-liking person. I know that's very strange. I, I like to sit, sit around and listen to other people speak. Um, that's why also I, I still take classes as much as I can when I can. Maybe I'll just mention one. When I was in my uh, LLM year, my master's year, I went to uh, a conference that was in celebration of Beth Simmons' uh, 2010 book, Mobilizing for Human Rights. It's a really great book. She's, a, she's not a lawyer, she's a political scientist, but she uh, researches uh, basically compliance with human rights treaties. And not so much her book necessarily, but the commentary from all the people there. I think this was the last time when I was in a room with everybody I read. And it was really, it was very, it was great. <laughs> I loved it. Did you also geek out a little bit? It happened to me once that there was um, a professor sitting next to me. He walked into the room a little bit later than everyone else and the conference had started and the panel had started talking. And all of a sudden I'm like, I know this guy from somewhere. Where do I know this guy from? And then I remembered that the whole week before that I've been reading all of his articles because it was recommended to me by my supervisor. So this was Professor Mark Heldling from Germany, and I met him there in Cairo. And I just almost drooled all over him when I tried to introduce myself. <laughs> and I realize now it might have been a bit embarrassing, but hey, maybe he was like you, and that he was just happy that someone had read his articles. <laughs> I'm, sh I'm sure he was. I'm, I'm actually always, uh, almost always too shy to actually walk up to people and start talking to them. So I sort of hope to bump into them in a, in a panel or in a in a class in a and you know in a classroom in a during a conference but i i rarely walk up to a person and actually introduce myself all right and then um for all the postdocs that you've done and the phd abroad you must have applied for quite some scholarships which one was one of the hardest ones to get well uh, all of the postdocs are scholarships at least in israel so you don't get a position without uh the funds as well which one was the hardest to get the ones i didn't get <laughs> yeah. in israel there's a the van leer scholarship the Pol it's called the polanski scholarship which i applied for i don't know probably five times already uh, and never made it but i keep on trying <laughs> fingers crossed for that one too all right and then what do you consider to be your best contribution to the field? As you might have already picked up, my obsession is ordinary people. So how, how do we get affected by law? How do we uh, affect law? How do we use law to uh, change our lives, to, ma to make our world? And I think that's a perspective that's not uh, present enough in scholarship, in international law at least. And I think it's there in almost all of my publications. So I, I would say that it's this perspective of thinking about this ordinary person in the legal system as uh, both uh, its, its audience and its uh, main actor. All right. Who has impressed you most with what they have accomplished? I don't know if it's most, but so Professor David Dysonhouse from Toronto is uh, someone I've, I met in New York when I was there. And he is 
like a world renowned brilliant legal theorist but he's also the kindest and nicest person with all the curiosity of a first year law student and all the attention to every student who has an idea and for that he's my role model like you can always go up and talk to him and he'll always be interested in thinking with you about what you're interested in I, that's the kind of teacher i want to be that's what you try after a hard day of work. I don't do it enough, but I never go to sleep without reading a few pages. I, I really like reading uh, everything from uh, crime novels to Harry Potter to uh, uh, you know, Hebrew English. I really like reading. Uh, and I always wish I had more time to do that. Fair enough. Something different than Netflix.